This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cami here. Today on the show, Trace Strancio and Nikki Levy. Now, Chase told a story on Owning It, which is one of Nikki's shows on Audible. She also has a show called Don't Tell My Mother. But also, Chase is a super important lawyer to us, to our family. So this was a really cool conversation. I've known Nikki for a long time, never met Chase. And it was a great, it was a great talk with both of them. Also, speaking of great talks, I'm good at giving those. And I'll be in Philadelphia, September 3rd through 5th, Portland, September 15th, San Francisco, September 16th, Los Angeles, this was just announced, September 19th. And that is a fundraiser for Hot Donna's Clubhouse. There is a group of folks opening a lesbian trans and non-binary inclusive bar in LA, our only one, and you can come support them, support me, September 19th at Dynasty Typewriter. I'll also be in Chicago, October 2nd, and Salt Lake City, October 14th. You can get tickets to all of that at CameronEsposito.com slash tour hyphen dates. I just did some shows in New York. Oh my God, that was me slapping my leg. I was so excited. And so many queeros, so many listeners came out and, um, really floored me, actually, with all the wonderful and kind things that they had to say about the show. So thank you to all those people that I just met at the Bell House. And hey, if you're going to come see me, wear your mask and get your vaccine. Many of the venues require vaccination and mask. Some of them just require vaccination. Some of them just require a mask. What could you do for me, your boy Cammy, and the rest of the audience members? Double up. I want that vaccination and I want that mask. Hey, love ya. Oh, I forgot. I want to thank out the, I want to thank out, I want to call out and thank the folks who support this show on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash heyqueeros and you can join Beck, Jamie, Jennifer Hunt, Chantal McLeland, Paula Vavadowski, Rachel McIntyre, Ethan Peterson, Stacey M, Levon Sawake, Tanya Josek, Brittany Carlson, Kevin Fry, Aaron Altacruz, Aaron Altacruz. Peg Gardner, Chloe Vicker, Hannah Booth, Francine Belbina, Bobby Dalmeyer, Audrey Rauer, Danny Alcorn, Leslie Jensen, Fiona Ding, Brenda Esposito, Lauren Snodgrass, Mara Barra, Gemma Douglas, Catherine Michaels, Amy A., and Jen Graf Perkins. We got currently 29 folks who are entering at the level of support where they get a shout out on the podcast. Can I tell you how much that means to me? It means so freaking much. If you want this show to keep happening, please head over to patreon.com slash Wow. Shows coming up. Patreon to support. And also this episode. I mean, could any, could life be any better? Sure. Life could always be better. All right. Enjoy this episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still I'm good to I'm good to just jump right in, and I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you both introduce yourself? Chase, you want to go first? Sure. Um, okay. 
So, hello. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Chase Strangio. I use he, him, or they, them pronouns. I am Deputy Director for Trans Justice at the National Office for the ACLU. And I am a lawyer there and really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so happy to have you. I've had I've been so aware of the work that you're doing for a long time. It's nice to finally meet you. I don't know how we haven't met, but I'm super grateful for all the work that you've been doing. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, you. it seems like always so strange to meet people in COVID that I feel like I should have met like a decade ago, but here we are on <laughs> <Sure>. Zoom. Love <laughs> it. <laughs> Absolutely. And how about you? Hey, Other I'm guest. <laughs> third screen. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm Nikki Levy. Um, pronouns she, her, hers. And um, I'm the creator and host of the Don't Tell My Mother live show and podcast. And um, I co-hosted and produced the Audible special um, Owning It. And I co-hosted with Alexandra Billings and had the amazing good fortune of having Chase tell an awesome story on. And uh, now I'm just so happy to see both of you. Yeah. And we've known each other for a long time, although not well. You know, I'm still I'm sure there's going to be stuff that I don't know about you that we chat about on the podcast, which is which is cool. I feel like because you did the live Don't Tell My Mother show in L.A., Mm-hmm. I feel like it was like seven years ago or something, but it was a long time. So long, but but I feel like so much has happened in all of our lives in seven years. <laughs> I mean, seven years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes, you're it's right. Crazy. Many, many things have happened. Like many in, lives. How have how have your seven years been? My seven years. I mean, I went from feeling like I'll never get married and I'm too much for people um, to finding this amazing wife who I feel so lucky to have found, just truly. Like, I think I was in a shitty relationship when I met you. And now and then I got out of that finally and um, just married a wonderful woman two years ago. So right before the pandemic, we eloped on a beach because she is very private and I'm the opposite of private. So then six months later, we had a wedding in our backyard and uh, told nobody that we had eloped until we signed the ketubah, which is the Jewish marriage contract in front of our family with the rabbi. And my wife said in front of our immediate family, isn't it funny that we really got married six months ago? And I was like, no, don't say it. And my mom was like, what do you what do you mean? You know, and she's like typical Jewish mom. And I was like, I was like, Scarlett. And she's like, what? And my mom was like, how did you not tell me? How did you keep this a secret? So anyway, that and then I'm trying to get pregnant. That is I mean, those are honestly and I launched the the Don't Tell My Mother podcast and left my day job. So that, that's just small that's nutshell stuff things. I actually don't I don't know what you're talking about, which is wild with regard to the Jewish marriage contract. What what? Oh, what? I don't know why I don't know this. So this is very interesting. Okay. to me. So um, is it what 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 are like the what is it? What are the terms? What okay. are you? Are you, is it with God? Who, who is the contract with? Can I be honest and tell you, I actually am not totally sure. I think it's with my wife. I mean, I know it's with my wife. It's a cut. God. I mean, literally God. I don't know. Well, I'm imagining because I literally wrote part of it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's like we got married at a, with a court, a courthouse thing. And then this is like saying, yeah, I guess this is saying under the under the eyes of Jewish God, which is already nebulous, 
then um then we are we are married as as wife and wife that's how we put it in our contract and um and we got to say like the terms of our marriage not like not like a prenup terms but like more like we want to keep the passion the joy the support for each other we got to write it because we chose a queer a queer one there's if you go to ketuba.com just for any of you who want to sure that Jewish I will, wedding, Chase, I'm, I don't know. I'm certain that I will. I don't think Chase's partner's Jewish either. Chase, is your partner Jewish? No, I'm okay. Jewish. And I've actually only what? been Jewish. I am Jewish. From Newton, Massachusetts. A Jew what? through and through. Oh, I lived in Newton, Massachusetts. Look, everything is all coming together. Wait a second. Um, I'm sorry. I 100 thought, 100% assumed you were Catholic Italian. Not that you were practicing. No, so my last name <laughs> would suggest that I am I, I have a Jewish mother, and my <gasps> father has married my well. My father and my mother are not married. My father's second wife, my stepmother, is Jewish. My father converted, and I my whole family is very Jewish. Wow! So Trevor and I have no idea. Also, this is a, I signed have nev- this contract. No, no, I I am not married, and I've never had a Jewish wedding. But my yeah, I've, I all like my, I've gone to my cousin's weddings and there's always a ketubah and I just went to my stepbrother's wedding and it's it's actually a really beautiful. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I love about Judaism, though I'm not like a religious person, is like the ritual aspect. And same, same so it's, it's just so much about tradition and ritual. And, um, and so, yeah, the signing of the ketubah, I think of it as just sort of it, you know, and I've only gone to sort of very culturally Jewish, secular feeling Jewish weddings, but it's like this, you know, it, it's not unlike vows and Correct. that are part of the Jewish tradition. And then you sign the ketubah and there's, I mean, any way, you know, there's all different ways it can happen, you know, you know, at the ceremony can happen before it can, you know, there's all different. Well, this is really placements. Interesting to me though, I think because, um, because like as alphabet folks, so rarely do we get to have a, a religious tradition that in, that our marriages are included in. So that that's I'm definitely going to be looking into this further. Like this is an area of interest for me. So I'm like I think that's super interesting because um, you know I think I think a lot of people who were raised. Um, outside of like Judaism this is the first I've heard of this particular thing Mm -hmm. um so outside of this tradition even if like many folks who then find themselves as members of like say an affirming Christian congregation that's something that was like for a lot of people not for everybody something that was chosen later in life you know and then there aren't really in like in a Muslim tradition there aren't there I don't know a lot of equivalents to what you're talking about um, that is something that you could have been raised with and then have, you know, for, for ourselves. So that's, that's super amazing that you got to have that. Our, 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 one of my things, cause my wife is not Jewish. She's Italian. Um, you're Italian, right? Kevin? It's my people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I am also, okay. my dad is Italian. Clearly so you, you. you should know you're, you are my, you and the Jews. I mean, the same thing. And my, my favorite, I mean, I love that Scarlet's Italian. And, um, that was, that was really important to me. Not that, like, it was really important to me that we had a, a Jewish wedding, and it's important to me that, like, we raise a Jewish kid, and, like, it's not that Scarlett's ever converting. She's never converting, ever, 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 and she's not, she's no religion. 
But we we looked around for different rabbis who would marry a Jew and a non-Jew because a lot of rabbis, Chase, you probably know, would only marry two Jewish people. Hmm. And um, and we found someone who started this amazing, like uh, this unbelievable um, Israel-Palestine group in L.A. And she is so she's not even wasn't even our, our actual my actual rabbi, but she's so good. And she conducted this Jewish ceremony where scarlet's traditions and her family were part of it and usually in, in a jewish wedding you know you cover you cover um the chuppah with a talit which is like a jewish prayer shawl but because obviously scarlet isn't jewish what she asked scarlet to do was hey is there like a tablecloth in your family that you guys use for ceremony you know for holiday was there is does yeah. she have a familial ta- tablecloth there was like something that had like stains on it from Thanksgiving or something. Sure. And her mom like donated, like gave it, to, you well. know, put it to us. And it was like such a nice way to work in things. So it felt like inclusive and not exclusive. There was nothing exclusive about it at all. It was like, you don't have oh, to know that's anything. That's really lovely. Yeah, yeah, that's really lovely. Well, Chase, I want to bring you back in for a moment. And um, I, we got to hear a little bit about what Nikki's been up to for the last seven years. Um, but maybe you could talk. And I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to all that too. But maybe you could talk a little bit about what, what you've been up to, what your job, maybe sort of expanding out a little bit more about what your job entails. Yeah. So, um, so I have been at the ACLU for almost nine years. So we can even, you know, we can work in yeah, the, well, can, near absolutely. decade increments. You well, know? we only on this show we only go in seven years. Oh, okay. So yeah, we'll start. <laughs> That's right. really important to the two show, right. as, as listeners would know. Yes. Um, well, and I do prefer actually prime numbers, so that works for me. <laughs> um, and. I, yeah, so, so two years into my time at the ACLU, seven years ago. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, No, but so I, you know, have, it's been an interesting number of years because I think, you know, I started and a lot of the work that I was doing was around litigating marriage equality cases. And that was a big part of the mainstream LGBTQ legal movement, um, which really, I think, you know, you, we, in order to understand this moment, in many ways, you have to understand that one. And and so, actually, can I stop you just a second? Yeah. There is was that part of why you were speci- is is that part of why you were specifically hired by the ACLU, or like, or was that part of your job description at in joining nine years ago? Yeah. So, so, so I, no, I mean, I think that it was definitely a big part of what the ACLU was doing at that time, but I had come from a small organization called the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and was doing trans work. And I think in many, in am trans, and I think that I was hired as a trans person in part because there was an understanding that, you know, well, this is a movement that is, has very few trans lawyers, but increasingly trans work is obviously central to the LGBTQ work. But even though that that was, I think, my expertise coming in, I was only a few years out of law school um, at the time of my hire. And the reality of the work was that, you know, this was in, I was hired in 2012 and started at the very beginning of 2013. And, you know, the ACLU was at the time litigating Windsor at the United States Supreme Court, which was the case that ultimately struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the federal law that prohibited federal recognition of state marriages between same-sex couples. And then essentially what happened after that is you have this very condensed two-year period of massive litigation challenging state bans on marriage. Um, And so that between 2013 and 2015, that was a huge part of, of what I was doing and what many people were doing. 
But I think what also happened during that time period is that as much as we were focusing on that, we weren't laying the groundwork for the trans work effectively um, because the resources were being funneled into marriage. Um, and so ultimately when Obergefell, which is the Supreme Court decision decided two years after Windsor that struck down bans on marriage for same-sex couples leading the way to marriage equality nationwide. When that was decided in 2015, the backlash was immediately centered on trans folks. Um, mm. And so you see beginning really in November of 2015, this massive movement to start to attack trans people in a more concerted way, leading to in 2016, the real proliferation of the anti-trans bathroom bills. That was the year of HB2 in North Carolina. That was the year where we saw, you know, dozens of anti-trans bills trying to ban trans kids from the bathroom in schools. Um, and we started litigating Gavin Grimm's case in the summer of 2015, which was ultimately, which would ultimately go to the Supreme Court twice, um, which involved a, a, you know, he's a he's a man now, but a boy who was barred from the bathroom at his school um, for being trans. And mm -hmm. so, you know, from 2016 until now, a lot of my work has really focused on sort of building out, you know, structural support in the litigation, legislative advocacy and communication space to challenge these very well-coordinated, very well-funded attacks on trans people. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what we ended up seeing were you know, sort of a peak in 2016 that ultimately dissipated some in terms of state level attacks when Trump was elected, because at that point you had the federal government being so consistently anti-trans that there wasn't that same level of attacks at the state level. Um, and, and then unfortunately what we've seen in the last year has been the most significant escalation of attacks. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I think, that we could identify. But largely, I think, you, you know, it's a back, a continued backlash to marriage equality, a backlash to the mm -hmm. Supreme Court's decision in Bostock from 2020, um, holding that LGBTQ people are protected under existing federal non-discrimination laws, backlash to Biden's election. Um, and so now we're in this position where the past year has been just especially brutal. And we've seen the highest number of bills in 20. Um, in 2021, attacking trans youth in particular, focusing on trans kids in sports and healthcare for trans minors. So I've been doing a lot of work trying to stop those bills when those bills do become law, suing over them um, and, and trying to, you know, create the pushback, at least in the courts and the state legislatures, um, you know, to try to minimize some of the harms of what we're seeing. Did you, is this the area of law that you thought you would practice when you were going to law school? Um, I definitely went to law school to do trans work in one way or another. I, I, you know, was wanted to, you know, support trans communities through, you know, some aspect of legal intervention. I think I never imagined being at the ACLU from, you know, that was like a type of law that I thought that, you know, I sort of thought as like overly compromised, overly assimilationist um, and was very much like, no, I'm going to do direct services. I went from, you know, I worked at a very small like nonprofit like collective with seven employees. That's what I thought I would do. Um, and then ultimately, uh, I think just saw, you know, how effective and important some of the big impact litigation could be. Um, Though I still have a lot of critiques of the work that I do. Um, and, it, you know, it, it's definitely, you know, why I went to law school was to do some amount of legal support and intervention around trans justice. I never imagined doing this, these big civil rights cases. Um, but 
I, you know, I shifted from small nonprofit to the ACLU after, you know, about two and a half years out of law school and have stuck around for nine years. And, and that has been, you know, sort of how I have chosen for better or for worse to try to do the harm reduction legal work. Um, that was the reason I went to law school. When you're saying that you, you were, you thought it would be overly um, assimilationist, do you mean because the types of cases and the types of plaintiffs that that are needed for something like these like large sweeping cases that it's not it's not necessarily um, the minutia but like the biggest broadest appeal version of some of these issues is that was that what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I think when you do impact litigation, you're handpicking your plaintiffs a lot of the time. You're you know you're not you know, saying, well, what does the community need most and who's in crisis and how do we sort of Mm. address these crises that are coming in? Like, you know, for example, I think if you do direct services, you're addressing, and there's lots of compromise in that too, but you're addressing sort of people's base. Direct services. Meaning, yeah. So (laughs) like, you know, doing work where, you know, someone comes in as like, these are the array of legal issues that I'm facing. Um, Can you help? Um, versus, you know, versus building a case and then looking for the right plaintiff exactly. that, that can stand behind that case or whatever. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and in a lot of times it's also someone in crisis. It's, you know, especially now it's like kids are about to lose their health care in Arkansas. That is a crisis. Sure. Um, and so that is, but it, these are massive cases that take years and you're very I much. I don't know that people would even know what we're talking about though. That's yeah. why I'm like yeah. asking them yeah. the, the nitty gritty questions. Cause I don't know that. Um, I mean, I don't even know why I know this, but it's not, I don't think that we talk about these cases in this way where, where, um, the ACLU is like looking for the right that, you know, it's not, it's not because the issue doesn't exist, but because the legal system is such that the type of plaintiff matters, you know, this matters too much. Perhaps, uh, I would say, but you know that that we're looking for like who's the most. Um, it's like who's the most legible. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's I didn't like legible. That, that that's yeah. how it worked. It's like who? I mean, if huh. you think about it, like too. I mean, we we have these like massive civil rights cases that we know of, like Brown versus Board of Education, Loving right. versus Virginia. Um, yeah. You know, the there. I mean, I maybe not everyone knows all these cases, but like. Um, you know, and and they are critically important cases, but there's always so much other types of work that is happening in these movements, right? right? And these cases are, um, you know, they take a decade potentially. And so, you know, whoever is the actual client in a case like this, like you do need to have quite a lot of comparative support and privilege to be able to litigate Mm -hmm. a case up to the United States Supreme yeah, Court. it's also destructive to the it's person's, d- you know, life and, life. and yes. um, ability to take care of themselves financially, medically, you know, emotionally in terms of move forward. Um, yeah, I, the, I again, I don't, I don't think this is common knowledge. And I don't I don't even know that people would know. I mean, God, like if I even just tried to describe Brown versus the Board of Education is about school integration. Loving is about um interracial marriage like I don't even know that we can name those so I I think I do think that some of the stuff that you're talking about here is like pretty in the weeds for the even the casual listener of this show that might have seen our lives impacted 
so many times by these types of cases in just the last decade alone. Um, Yeah, and I think one way to think about it, too, is like, so the impact litigation, like big civil rights work, like organizations like the ACLU or Lambda Legal or, you know, NAACP, Mm -hmm. Legal Defense Fund, like those, the work that we do is about, you know, finding ways to change what the law says Mm -hmm. about, you know, and then, but a lot of the work that we need on a day-to-day basis is about applying the law to people. And we don't really do that type of enforcement work, you know? So we know, for example, in a city like New York, there's lots of legal protections for people. They just aren't getting the benefit of them because the law is not actually being enforced. And so when you're doing direct services work, a lot of times you're saying, well, the law needs to apply to me in this way. And and I'm just going to go and make sure that it does. And then it, impact litigation organizations, big civil rights organizations were saying, we want the law to say something totally different. Right. And yeah. This it's is like really, making this the law. Yeah. Absolutely. Like yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the, the, a good example of this is also the Americans with Disabilities Act, which like had to be passed. But the only way that it's that individual service providers have to change what they're doing are like individual lawsuits. Like for, yeah. like there's a, like there's this big law that says that you have to provide accessibility, but if your gym that you go to doesn't, then the way that we actually deal with that in this country is individually suing those uh-huh. gyms or whatever it is to, so anyway, this is, this is very in the weeds, but I do think it's super interesting. Um, and well, I, I, and I never, I never thought of it that way. To think about. I mean, I'm not any kind of lawyer at like at literally You're not at any all. kind of lawyer, not even, a, <laughs> not even, not even a cute lawyer, not even a casual I mean, yeah. Not I mean, even casual. I'm wearing my casual underwear. I guess I I, I could be casual <laughs> anything, but um, uh, I never thought of that like that, Chase. I I really didn't. Like I I never thought that like right. What you do with the ACLU is creating. Like I never thought of it that it it's literally the whole work is creating systemic change for us queer people, as opposed to helping like someone who's like, hey, my my boss fired me anyway, even though the law said they can't. Mm-hmm. I never thought of that. That's really cool. Really, yeah, that's a, a cool way to think little, about it. A lot of people working at things from different directions, for sure. Uh huh. And we need it all. So it's just about which intervention do we choose, and you know, yeah. and how do we then support the work that we're doing without compromising other types of work? And I think when you're mm-hmm. doing big legal cases, you're relying on the legitimacy of the legal system that in many ways is fundamentally illegitimate. And that I think is one of the big challenges. It's, you know, you have to have a lot of faith in what the courts do to do what I do, but I don't have that faith in the courts, but you still, you know, every day you're like, can we continue to push even if Mm. the system itself is so fucked up? Excuse Mm. me. It's so flawed. No, that's, I mean, you can say fucked up. Okay. (laughs) No worries. Yeah. Well, and then the two of you, how do you know each other? Is it is it working on this recent project? Is it general queerness? Well, like how, how what what is your history knowing each other? I have known of Chase. I actually first Chase. I think I I told you this, but I first learned of you because my best friend Erin, her kid um, is trans, but at the time was just gender nonconforming, and I say just because you know that's what they wanted to be called and now they're trans but um and my friend Aaron kept talking about you and then of course I would mm-hmm. like you know follow you on Instagram and when I was putting together the 2021 pride special for audible I've done it three other years and it's always like you know fabulous 
actors and comics, you know, telling true queer stories for Pride, right? And this year, um, actually for the first time, I thought, well, what if we had someone that isn't, you know, isn't a like actor or a com, you know, a comedian? And and I reached out to Chase and um, I stalked you a little bit because I think you were you were literally in the middle of like you were literally in the middle of the big 2020 case protecting us, protecting all of us, you know, in housing and healthcare. Um, uh, and uh, you wrote back to me and I was so happy. I was, it was one of those things where I was like checking my email. I'm like, I hope it was like, I was like 13 years old. I'm like, I hope Chase writes back and he wants to do this. And, um, and we just got to know each other working on his story. And um, yeah, we just, it was fully over Zoom. And when we recorded the special, um, we recorded, I think, six different performers and Chase was the only person that wasn't like a Hollywood quote unquote person. And his story was so good. He closed this, but he closed the special. The story oh, literally headlines? closed. The special. He had his first baby's first headlining gig. Mm-hmm. That's, awesome. That's amazing. St- I mean, Chase, you should jump in because like, but the story was so, it was so right for this time when we had to record a comedy special, by the way, over zoom, like that shouldn't happen. Yeah. I mean, I literally recorded it in my closet because there was no quiet space on the floor. Yes. Um, so it was, did. yeah, it was very COVID in its <laughs> absurdities and chaos. Mm-hmm. And Nikki, how, how is this working on these specials for, for Audible? How, how, and then even don't tell my mother, which is sort of predates that or like, is yeah, it does. What led to that? Um, how, how did that come into your life? What, how how did you start doing uh, those projects? Well, I'll backtrack. It's not a prime number. It's 10, (laughs) but I'm not good at math. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, no, I was, you know, like I, I was a movie and television executive for 20 years up until December. Um, and 10 years ago I was running a company at Fox and I was honestly completely, disillusioned with the movie making process just bored truly I mean bored I have ADHD so I I get bored and I didn't take my Adderall today so if I fidget that's why but uh I I was just I was working in animation you know it was comedy but it was animation and honestly the glacial pace of development um I mean Cameron you you literally know this you know being in movies and television for you know a long time it takes so long to get something made. And my job was being a producer. So I was on the part that was trying to get it made. It wasn't being in it. You know, it was like trying to push a humongous boulder up a hill. And when you're dealing in animation, it's almost like you're pushing 10 boulders up simultaneously. It's even kind of worse than live action. And um, and I missed writing and I missed performing. And that's what I studied in school. I literally studied writing and performing. And I found myself on the other side of things. And I said, well, wait, I, I have something to say and I miss saying it. And I absolutely had, and it's, I think it's past tense, a super codependent relationship with my mother. Like I was the husband. Chase, I don't know if you relate to this at all. I feel like you might, but I was the husband and, um, and I decided, oh my God, I know these great, you know, uh, writers that I work with, like Academy Award nominated or winning writers. I'm going to call a show. Don't tell my mother and tap these writers to tell a story they wouldn't want their moms to know. So I put a show up on Fairfax at a little hole in the wall theater that, by the way, doesn't exist anymore. We put it up in the lobby, completely sold out. And 
I realized, oh my God, writers are the absolute worst performers on the planet. <laughs> like the worst. Like they can tell such an epic story about like saving, you know, puppies and then, you know, giving birth to the puppies. puppies. I mean, I don't even know. And you just want to like tweeze your hair out like individually, you know, I, at least I do. And I was like, this is this is just not what I want. And then I realized, oh, my God, what about just these like great actor friends I have and great, you know, comedian friends I have. And I started working with them on their stories, just like I work with my screenwriters. Like, I mean, Cam, you, you literally know this because I get annoying yeah. with it because I work with people. And what is the arc of your story? How is this 10 minute story a movie? Right. How is someone going to sit on the edge of their seat and you on stage as their hero, which is different than stand up comedy? You really get to pull something out. And I would host it and I would tell my own story. And I, they were always usually really gay and really Jewy. It's like, my first soft pack. I mean, this was this really was a story I told once and never told it at all. You know, falling in love with my therapist, um, you know, cutting all my hair off so people would believe that I was a lesbian because nobody would believe me because I have long hair. And I I don't know, I'm, quote unquote, sometimes feminine, I guess. And it became this kind of like institution here in L.A. And you'd get like hundreds of people would come and people like Alexandra Billings, who co-hosted Chase and my special with. She told this amazing story and Tracy Ellis Ross and Kate McKinnon and Ali Wong and just, and you, your story was unbelievable when you did the show. I will never, ever forget that story. And just, can, 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 can you just give a log line of it? Because it was Dude, so good. Dude, I actually have, I cannot fucking remember what I talked about. Oh my God. What did I talk about? You do told, you remember? I do you never, actually remember? Uh, I do not remember. Okay. Cam told this amazing story of um, kissing a girl for the first time in your entire life, oh, totally yes. thinking God was going to smite you and ending up with essentially like ringworm on your oh, face. Yeah. You essentially were like smited. You felt yes. like you were because you grew up religious. That that did happen to me. And it yes. was so good. Wait, you do remember. This is a long time ago. I, you know, I, you were one of my favorite guests. I, I, Good job. I, I, when I say that to shit. your memory. So I, these words came out of my mouth and I did not remember what they were. Oh, they were so but good. Yes. And, um, and it was just really freeing to me. And it, the show is very queer. It's not just queer, but it's, but it's very queer. And, and I think it's because us queer people, we're usually on the outside and people that are outsiders are the best storytellers because we're looking in. I mean, that's what a good story is. It's an outsider's perspective. Um, and that's who we root for. And uh, and out of the Don't Tell My Mother live show, I ended up pitching Audible, um, you know, hey, can we just do a Pride special? And yeah. And so we would record the live show every year um, and people would just tell it live. And I'd get in the studio with like Shangela or Alexandra Billings or, or Tan France. And we would do our fun host raps. Well, the last year we did the entire thing just from our closets. I'm in my closet right now. So Chase was in his closet. I was in my closet. Um, That's a very cute closet. Thank mm. you. I, I had it Nicely painted. painted. I just it. had it painted. Looking great. Um, um, yeah. And, and, well, and that's it. It was like Harvey Guillen, who you know and I know and I yep. love from what we do in the shadows. Um, Jen Kober, uh, Bianca Del Rio. And it was just a really, it's just a way for us to like honestly put something out during Pride that feels powerful and celebratory. And I guess during COVID, I think we needed the community more than ever because nobody was going. Uh, we weren't doing pride here in L.A. I miss doing pride and going to a bar, having a party. And 
And it's sort of a way to like bring pride to people. And I was just honored to have Chase because I just I love him. And I was so proud of him that he held his own with all of these like award winning performers. And he's a lawyer like he's changing the world. And and he got to keep my tiny attention span. <laughs> so I'm honored to, to be with him. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! There is there is something that makes sense here to me that's kind of, you know, a good jumping off place for the next thing to talk about, which is, so, you know, it's, you're talking about, Nikki, like, sort of being behind the scenes and then in wishing to have your own voice and, and moving forward. And and um, I don't know how, I'm curious how you feel about that, Chase, because I do think that, well, I'll say, I know, like, I actually do know, I do know. I think I know one other person who works at the ACLU and then I'm like aware of you. We don't know each other, but I'm aware of you. And I don't know if it's because you are a trans guy who's then also speaking about this litigation. And so it's like the lived experience mixed with the expertise that makes you like a compelling person to follow. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's what it is. Um, or if it's just like the fact that you have your own platform, but I'm curious if, if this is a part of your job and the work that you do that you anticipated or that you like, because, you know, for somebody who's, whether you're like writing a brief or arguing a case in court, that's human about your own life. That's a really different area. Obviously you're open to it because you did this special and you're on this podcast right now, but how does that feel to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I think this is a really complicated question that, that does comes it come up, up to a lot. Up a lot? Um, and I think in one way it, it should be a, I mean, uh, well, it's not that I get, it comes up a lot in my mind at least. And, it, you know, I think it, it you know, and, and also in some ways it should come up a lot because the question too always should be, we, are human beings and we bring our full selves to everything that we do. And I think there's this assumption in law that there's some sort of like science to it. Not that any science is, is, is extricable from human beings, <laughs> you know, like everything mm -hmm. is through the lens of the people who are, sure. you know, presenting it or observing it or whatever. Um, but I think we see this a lot in journalism yes. too, which is like, well, what is the subjectivity of the person who's telling the story? And law is narrative as much as anything is narrative, you know, as much as journalism is narrative, as much as any storytelling is narrative. Um, and so we bring ourselves to the work that we do. And I think that, you know, there was even, you know, there's all these interesting, really problematic things that came up. I, I remember like in the marriage litigation um, at there was, 
you know, efforts to get gay judges recused from cases as if only right. a gay judge has a sexual orientation. Only, you know, if you're, if you're in, if you're like not in the dominant, then you're seen as having a right. subjectivity. If you are the dominant, wow. then you're seen as being the neutral, right? And so then if you're presumed to be not neutral, then your subjectivity is always more visible and your identity is more visible. And so I think that that becomes a really big part of sort of how does identity figure in to the work that we do as advocates. And I think for me, when I started at the ACLU, I was like, I'm never doing communications. I don't want to be a public figure. Um, but it, I, what ended up happening was I, in my very first year at the ACLU, started representing Chelsea Manning. Um, and Chelsea, for those who don't know who Chelsea is, was um, or is you know is still a whistleblower who um, you know had well you know long before what we think of as WikiLeaks now had sort of turned over in the public interest analyst? to host of documents you, to WikiLeaks job? around. She was a military. Yeah, yeah. she was. Um, she was in um, in the military, and she was an right. analyst, and so she had access to a lot of information. And ended up exposing a lot of war crimes and mm. horrible actions of our government, um, and was arrested, and ended up, you know, essentially went went to to a trial in the legal the military legal system. It was very clear that she was trans during that time. She did not come out as trans until after she was sentenced. And I was working at the ACLU at the time. The ACLU had been very involved in her case for a number of reasons, concerns about the way she was being prosecuted under the Espionage Act, um, lots of concerns about her conditions of confinement. So we were connected to her case. And I was like, this is a trans person. I'm very worried about her health and well-being. She comes out. I end up becoming her lawyer. It's a very public case. Um, and I start getting asked to do media. And at the time, in 2013, this is like pre-Laverne Cox's tipping point. You know, this is like the oh. very beginning of like Janet Mock and Laverne right. starting to be more visible. We're starting to have more visible trans people. But the very first media interview that I did on camera was Democracy Now!, which is a very left, you know, uh, show. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Super, yeah. Super left. Super left. For like I love a, that show. For moderately mainstream thing, you can't yeah. kind of can't get yeah. more left. Right. So I yeah. go on. I'm supposed to talk about the Constitution. <laughs> Amy Goodman says, you're transitioning from female <gasps> to male. Tell us about that. Live, on air. Oh, wow. And uh, I was like, wait. I was just so taken aback. And it was such, it was very much like, I, I don't know if folks remember, like this was also very close in time to when Katie Couric had Carmen Carrera and Laverne Cox on and asked them yes. about their genitals yes. on air. And I then they that. did like, that was, I think, right around the same time, Laverne had, and they both had this very, you know, sort of graceful response, which was like, you cannot ask us this. And here's why. Right. Um, so this was very much like a pivotal moment in trans representation in media and trans conversations in media, but it was still very right. early and, and everything and was bad. <laughs> that was actively, that you were, you were in process or were you out about this? Is it, what was, what was, how, I was where, out as trans for sure, but I was definitely not, I was just, it, I had never even gone on TV. I was just a lawyer and I thought I was going on to talk about the eighth right. amendment of the constitution and, right. you know, to talk about yeah. Chelsea's conditions of confinement. Absolutely. There was another trans person on air. So it wasn't like I was being outed. Although obviously I think anytime your, your transness is disclosed without your consent, that's like an outing. It wasn't like nobody knew, but it was very much like, wow, this is all we can see. Even when you're seeing a person who you're interviewing as a legal expert, there's the, your salience as trans and your body becomes, you know, such a central part of 
the conversation. And, and I have since gone on Democracy Now!, you know, 20 times and have a very close relationship with the show and, and worked with the producers. And there are so many trans guests and I've been on consistently. And the conversation has changed dramatically in these last eight years. But in 2013, mm-hmm. it was like there was no real comfort with having someone who was known to be trans as any, as, as a person who's an expert on trans, as a person who's an expert on anything else. Um, and, and essentially what happened after that was I, I sort of saw the work in some ways as being inextricable from telling stories of transness. And the easiest story for me to tell was my own and my clients, of course, but like I have the most control over my story. And so I started to, with a lot of reservations, I will say, especially in the beginning, sort of use my own experiences as a tool, an Mm -hmm. advocacy tool, Um, and have done that consistently for the last eight years since I've sort of had a media, you know, Mm -hmm. have been engaged in in public conversations and have, you know, worked really closely with Laverne Cox because we were friends and have sort of done a bunch of different advocacy things together, um, which of course then creates like its own media moment, um, which we've used very strategically over the years, including in in 2019 at the Emmys leading up to the arguments in the Supreme Court case. Um, But I will say it has taken away from my professional development opportunities as a lawyer that my cis counterparts have been able to have. It's like if I'm spending all this time doing this like educating the ACLU internally, mm-hmm. educating the world through like many, many very deliberately curated types of engagement. That's work. Sure. And so yeah. you have to, you, then it's like, well, how is, you know, where, what types of labor are then valued or what's, you know, outside the, what is typically mm-hmm. considered the job of the lawyer. Um, and it means too, especially now as like my visibility has grown in a number of different ways, the backlash that I receive is incredibly significant. Um, and so then it's also contending with that. I guess my hope, um, is that the more that I do it, the less the next generation of trans lawyers will have to. Right. I mean, you know, I, I relate to a lot of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I definitely, um, I definitely feel for you. I, I will also say that Something that strikes me as being even more particular to the instance that you're talking about is that Chelsea Manning was really not, she was not available for, she was not anywhere at the time publicly because she was being in prison. Yeah. Yeah. She was incarcerated without uh, availability to the public. Um, And so I'm imagining that in all the circumstances that you're talking about, it's like even, even, even a more extreme circumstance um, because of the particulars of who it was that you were representing. And even in terms of like, um, I just remember that time so indelibly, it's like folks not even the constant misgendering and like not even having accurate um, photos that were being, you know, shared um, or, any context for how to talk about this person who then wasn't speaking in her own voice. So, you know, just a really intense time for you to then step into public life. Um, Sounds very challenging. Yeah, no, that's really true. And obviously one of the, you know, things of incarceration is, you know, taking people's voice away in a multitude of ways. And that was very much true for her. Although I think, you know, she did start writing more 
Um, and she wrote for The Guardian while she was in, in prison. But I think, yeah, the lack of images. And she was already this, you know, incredibly scrutinized figure and then came mm-hmm. out as trans, one of the most visible trans people at the time. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, it's mm-hmm. pre pre Caitlyn Jenner even coming out. Um, yes. And so there was so, yeah, it was the dead naming, the misgendering, the lack yeah. of photos was just a consistent part of sort of how the media was contending with her identity and her body. Yes, and then I absolutely. was there as like a proxy. Yeah, absolutely. And and also the sort of um, the like, again, just the particularity of like a sort of a narrative that somebody's trying to get out of something by disclosing this part of their identity that there's actually related to incarceration also. So like it's um, incredibly important for that person to disclose because of this moment that she found herself in where Mm -hmm. like that, you know, that really impacts how one would be treated in a situation like that. Um, um, But I just, what a like, wild time in a not that it would I don't know how it would be today but that was particularly raw all of that um I can't believe that's like year one (laughs) that is some wild stuff yeah no it was I mean and I think too it's just a reminder of like as much as I feel like especially in 2021 with how bad things have been for trans folks um that we also have come and we have done so much transformative work in a short period of time. And I was talking to my partner last night about even just ID documents. And I was like, oh, I need to renew my passport and all mm-hmm. of these things. And I was like, but, you know, I already changed my gender marker. And then but thinking about, you know, when I started practicing law in, you know, 20, 2008 to, to 2010, I was doing a lot of ID documents work. You know, it, you had to prove, you had to bring in OR records of genital surgery That's to crazy. update your birth certificate in New York City. That was when I was, I'm only 11 years out of law school. That was what we were doing in 2010. Now, you know, we're at a place where we have a lot of, you know, self-attestation, no doctors involved, non-binary markers. You know, you don't need to prove or show any surgeries to update your identification at the federal level with immigration, social security, um, the state department for your passports. I mean, that you know, it seems, I mean, I had search a letter from my surgeon and I was brought into social security, um, you know, after I had chest surgery. And that was, it just was, I didn't even question it because that was, I felt even lucky to have it, you know, whereas like we have fundamentally transformed a lot of things and not everywhere. And it's so difficult for people to have access to even ID period because we make so many things inaccessible, but we have you know, done an incredible, uh, you know, through, you know, generations of trans people organizing and leading. We've changed a lot of things in a very short period of time. Well, that is crazy. an amazing spot to stop this conversation for just for today. Heavens, I could certainly talk to you both for a lot longer about many other topics, but it's been great to speak with you. And I want to ask you before you rejoin your day, um, to shout out a queero, which is like a a person, place, or thing that made you feel that you can be who you are today. Mm. Would who would like to who would like to shout out a queero in this team? I feel like I have three. So great. There's that's <clears> fine. <throat> All right, because it's funny because 
yeah, I have two people and then I have a thing. I'm going to start with the thing. Great. So when I was um, a freshman in college, one of my best friends was gifted by this very rich lady for tickets to see Rent when Rent came through. And I saw Rent and um, I was 18 and I saw for the first time Two Girls Kiss and it changed my life. It literally changed my life. It was the first time I'd ever seen it. And I was like, that's what I want to be. Like, that's me. And it it was just I, I get the chills even thinking about it. And, you know, and then two people, I mean, I, I talk about her a lot and, um, and it's just cause I love her is honestly, Alec, Alexandra Billings. I love her. I met her because she was my, she was my acting teacher before transparent. And I just loved her because she said something that I constantly have to remind myself, which is that they say less is more, less is not more, less is less. So I was always told to be like, I'm too much, like I'm just too much, you know, I'm too loud, I'm too uh, open, I'm too sexual. I mean, I can't even tell you the amount of too much I've been told. And like, I've tried so hard, you know, I'm like 40, basically, almost. No, I'm a little over 40. Um, I've tried so hard, you know, especially in my 20s and 30s to be less, less at work really less in relationships. And you know what? It's just bitten me in the ass because I end up feeling suffocated and I'm so sick of that shit that now I'm just like, if you don't like, like I am myself, I'm not going to be less. I am just this. I don't have to be more than myself to prove a point, but I do get to show up as me. And if you don't like it, kind of kindly fuck off. And that's how I feel these days. I'm so glad you brought this back around because that was something <laughs> that I marked earlier that I, we just didn't get to go back to is when you were talking about, um, wanting wanting to be less when you were younger so thank you for that sucks thank you for uh yeah doing my job and bringing you're, it you're welcome. back and the other person i love sorry i have to just bring her up because i did say three and i don't want to leave anybody hanging. of course um i, I please i love there was no chance we were going to stop it too I love not a just, chance don't make me be less i i also never like no members. here it is um the third one i am so in awe of fortune Feimster. Because I met her back in New York and, you know, she was this comic and she was queer and, you know, she didn't she didn't sort of meet any kind of like expectations of who someone might want to see on a stage as a woman performing, you know, and she has just killed it and and continues to work so hard. And um, I just I love her and she inspires me. She really does. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we've had Alexandra and Fortune on this show, so anybody oh, cool. wants to hear them could just go back through our uh, backlog. And we haven't had Rent on this show, but we have had Anthony Rapp. Um, oh, that's cool. And also, the when I saw Rent on Broadway, do you know who was the co-star? Was Joey Fatone? Are you serious? <laughs> I heard he shared a tour bus with Lance during NSYNC, <laughs> and I heard he was a big farter. He farts a lot. Well, that was not audible during the performance. Right. But it was a very funny person to be in Rent since anybody who, <laughs> you know, that, that, I will say that musical, like, has, it's, I don't think a younger person is maybe even aware of it. I feel like it's, times have moved uh -huh. on, but one thing I will say is that there's, <laughs> they're really supposed to be struggling yeah. in new york city that's a weird and cast. then it was actual joey fatone that's which crazy just was a true dream 
Case, how about you? Uh, uh, well, I, I, you know, I am 38 and also rent was transformative in my life. <laughs> Shameful as that is. No. Um, okay. But I definitely saw it so many times. It's absurd. Um, but so I, I think the, so the person who I have been thinking about for the last few years, who I talk about a lot, who is not alive, is Polly Murray, who was a black, non-binary, queer lawyer who was instrumental yes. in the civil rights movement and sort of was very much instrumental in coming up with the, the legal arguments for Brown versus Board of Education, influenced both wow. Justice Thurgood Marshall and Justice Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg put Polly's name on one of her um, instrumental Supreme Court briefs because it was Polly's thinking that was, had shaped a lot of the race and sex discrimination law that we use today. And, and Polly was a poet and a uh, the spiritual faith leader, person, person um, of faith, yeah, yeah, and um, and a lawyer, and um, lived in New York, lived all over. Um, but there's a new film coming out. It, you know, uh, well, it was released at Sundance this past year, but it, it will be out um, for broader release in September. Um, and it's about Polly. And I think more. I think the fact that we don't know about Polly is is shameful. I mean, some people do, obviously, but more people will. I think. Um, in time and and Polly is a is a hero and I carry Polly with me in my work and everything I do and this is a queero always. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, we did it. We did it. <laughs> we did it. I turned Thanks. off my air conditioning for this, so it's too many. Oh my degrees, god, it, turn it back on. It's so well, loud. Yeah. It was a, no that was the right yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And yeah. now you are released. Now we are we can be cool. Yeah.